This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Governor, you you quit a, a, a presidential race. That had to have been huge. Or was that always baked into it? Well, you know, I was there till the bitter end. And when it was over, I, I haven't ever told anybody this. I was on a plane and we were going to do a fundraiser and I could have done it. And I thought, you know, that's not right. I, I know this isn't going to go on because Trump's going to have enough votes in the convention. I was really hoping that we would block him and then people would come to their senses. Mm. But when it was over, um, I left, we got off the plane, I went inside the, the uh, FBO and I went behind this building and I cried. I had one cry. And then I went, then I went to my daughter's school and that was really hard. And they had gotten wind of it. And then they came out and gave me a big hug, but then it was over. And I, it was a wonderful experience. So, Jordan, you know, I've been recently just reading these unbelievable stories, and I know this touches you, about Ukraine. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it, that here in the 21st century, um, that this is is possible. But the cameras are right there in Europe. We're all living this like every single day. It's – I I just – how do you even describe it? And people are so frustrated. We just – we can't lose – our vigor and our energy and our focus on this thing. I mean, you were just in Hungary, I know, and so you got to meet people. Yeah, well, I will say, yes, yeah, so I was in, in Hungary. We're doing a special, um, uh, Fingers the Pulse special in Hungary, and so I was in Budapest. And, you know, you see images uh, on the news every single day, but you go to the train station in Budapest and you see the refugee crisis uh, firsthand. There are people coming off of every train. Um, and uh, it was... You know, life hits you really fast uh, to see uh, there's most mostly women and young children. A lot of the men uh, were back in the Ukraine fighting and they're they're feeding their kids at the train station, trying to figure out ways to continue on to another country, trying to find uh, housing there in Budapest. Like uh, it's you, you see the struggle, the struggle up close. And I will say what I found inspiring and such a dark, sad story is. I got some to spend some time with people in Budapest and so many people in the community. The government is helping a smidge, but where the government isn't helping, the people are stepping in. They are setting up. If you walk out of the train station in Budapest, you immediately see people are giving out cell phones, SIM cards, food, housing. I traveled with a man who was driving people back and forth between a hostel that had got turned into a, a center for, where people could sleep for a few nights to figure out if this was their landing point or if they're going to meet somebody else. He was keeping, he had family staying with him for the last two weeks. He was uh, a a former actor and a late night television host. I I was looking at a mirror, but the person I was looking at was much more effective and human than I've ever been. And, and in all that darkness, I think that's where I found some of that, some of that light is that there are still people there who don't, uh, aren't trying to divvy up sides. They're just trying to say they're humans, they're suffering, and they need help. Let's let's try to give them that help. There, so, there are so many so many great stories. Uh, I, I just read one the other day. I think uh, Julie Bowen, who will be with us a little bit later, would be inspired by this. Four women, two nurses and two doctors. They live in Arizona, and they collected material for Ukraine. And then somebody over there, invited them, and the four of them flew over there. They spent a few weeks over there, and imagine that. They were right on the border, um, and one of the things that you talked about, it, <laughs> we, we tend to forget the kids and the, what the PTSD, what these kids are going through. They were there to comfort those children, and and think about those guys, uh, Jordan. Think about them. You know, they they take their family to the border and they turn around and go back to war, uh, knowing they may never 
see their family again. I, it's just, it's just so horrible. And um, God bless those Ukrainians. And uh, we just got to do everything we can to help them. Yeah, it's it's they're heartbreaking images there, and our our, our thoughts are, are are with them. Um, I think you're right. I as as I was over there, I it changes when you see it, right? When you're there and you well, see you these see it, things, I, yeah. And I think like it's there's just there's so many kids that are there, and I think that's that's part of the also the the flaws that we have. So with so much work, so easy to put people at a distance, and I think and there's so many other levels going on. Part of what we looked at in Hungary is also their, their ineffectiveness uh, with the Syrian refugee crisis. And so much was about actually not seeing those people as brothers, as sisters, as humans in need and seeing them as other. And that was part of one, it's yeah. part of the hypocrisy of how it was dealt with over in Hungary. But two, it just, it shows the cracks in the system. It's like, you know, these are to be treated as, as humans in need and where can we give? And I think those are the stories we should be applauding and pointing to in these times. Yeah, absolutely. On a lighter note, uh, I know you're not a big golf fan, but we had a amazing Masters tournament. And we I have a, to take your word for it. Yeah. I, I couldn't think of a more boring thing to potentially watch. This Let me guess, an, an old white person, did he win? Yeah, but uh, you know, here's the thing that is so so great. This guy Scott Scheffler, who won, is that an accountant he, or that's a that, that's, no? That's he's a, golfer? a he's a he's a 25 year old guy, and here's okay. here's what's so and he, he's so, decided to put it. He said he put his time into to doing what to go out well, partying he's, he's, to be an architect. He's, 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 no, let me let me just he's tell a the golfer? story. He's, this is a golfer. Yeah, yeah, he's a golfer. He started when he was about five or six years old. Okay. But there were two things that struck me, and not about him winning the golf tournament. It was about the people around him. Uh, he won a golf tournament the week before, and his father his father raised the four kids. Mom was an executive. It was a sort of a reverse of what we see more and more of today. I mean, we see more of it today. We didn't see it then. But Dad said, I just did what came naturally. And um, so he raises these kids. Well, when... This when this guy wins this tournament the week before the Masters, his father gets him when the tournament is over, and he hugs him and he says to them, uh, "I am so so thrilled that you won this, but this doesn't matter to me as much as the fact that you're just a great great young man and a great son." And then when he won the tournament, you know he gave credit to his wife. He he cried the morning of that because there's a lot of pressure on that. It's like. Think about stand-up times like a thousand, okay? No, and he was crying. What? He was oh. not. Hold on, hold on. He and he didn't think he he didn't think he was ready for the moment. And um, his wife said to him, "You know, I really don't care whether you win this golf tournament or not. I want you to win. But whether you win or don't win, I love you, and that's all that matters because you're a wonderful person." It's an example today of what we want to see: of family, family that reinforces family. And celebrates the good, and it's not about the victory. It's about sort of the, you know, it's about the effort to get the victory. It was just such a family thing and a beautiful tournament, and people watched. And, you know, I know they probably didn't watch that as much as they watched Saturday Night Live or something, but uh, at the same time, it's, it's, a, it's an American tradition. And by the way, you can get a chicken sandwich down at that tournament for $1.50. Talk about being an inflation fighter. So Jesus, anyway, man, look, I'll talk. Look, you're going you're, to a baseball what are you, you're game. Throwing, you are just you're throwing, trashing you're throwing the soccer? kitchen sink I mean, at me on. here. You're throwing the kitchen sink I at me here. Two of them. It's about family. It's about it parents. It's, it's about chicken sandwiches. Back when chicken sandwiches cost, <laughs> cost under two dollars. What world are you living in? These platitudes keep you warm at night. They God do. Bless. I think about them and they make me feel good in, a, well, in an era where I've got to deal with cynical comics. <laughs> yes. No, I'm so happy that this man of 24, he struggled 20, 24 years of struggle, and finally he reached the top. I don't know how he did it. I'm going to send you some clips of why uh, golf is not actually a sport, but I'm happy people found okay. success in it, and I'm glad one to see the, the family unit support one another. We need more of that. Uh, <laughs> speaking of family, is that a good tra- is that a good? Uh, yeah, it's very transition? good. I, I set you up perfectly. You really did. Um, we have a, we have a wonderful guest. Uh, you know and love her from movies like Happy Gilmore, shows like Ed, Lost, Boston Legal, and eleven hilarious years as the indelible Claire Dunphy on Modern Family. She now has a weekly podcast, Quitters. It's with Julie Bowen, our guest, and Chad Sanders, where they sit down and uh, talk to a range of guests, explore the art of quitting and the new beginnings that it can bring. Uh, Here's a transition. She may be a quitter, but she never quits being amazing. 
Julie Bowen. Wow, I like that. Thank you. Yes. That was that was really good. Also, I, I really enjoyed your conversation about golf. I've always thought if you can smoke and do it, it's not really a sport. It's a skill. It's an incredible skill. Like playing pool is an incredible skill. But if you can if you can dangle a Carlton one hundred while you're doing it, it probably isn't it's not as much of a sport. That being said, I was in, it's true, Happy Gilmore. A golf movie. I have played a lot of golf in my life. I much respect to the golf. Uh, I I was really hoping that that somebody other than a a white dude would win the Masters. But yeah, it was kind of, they call that, you know what they call that? They call that a pipeline issue, Klepper. That's what the problem is. Okay. The pipeline is so chock-a-block with young white dudes who have access to these golf courses. You know, I live right near a beautiful golf course here. And I'm not allowed to go because they won't allow women. Is that right? Yeah, it's See, walking th- distance. Which one they is won't that? Allow it. This which, is which horseshit. Which one is that, Julie? Why, why are you carrying water Lakeside. for this, Governor Kasich? Why do I carry water for the sport? It's a private. It's, pro- it's a private. It's a private course. Yeah. they're not on any city land. And as you, I, in honor, I've got three sons, and I kind of don't give a rat's ass about joining a golf club. But it's right there. They could ride their bikes to the tee. And but they can't because I'm a single woman, so you're not allowed to join. Yeah, that's still I I mean, that's just an outrage. But at the same time, I would tell you the most exciting (laughs) thing in golf today is the rise of the women's game. The purses are growing. Yeah, Uh, the 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 people who are the women golfers are fantastic. Uh, They they've got incredible skills. You know, we see that rising also with with the power of women's basketball. We're beginning to see these things happen. That should have happened a long time ago, but it's outrageous that they won't let a woman into a golf club. And it's, you know, this is the 21st century. It's crazy. It's or the, wh- the boys, the, the, what do the boys play? What do they want to, what do they, they what's their want, They would love to play. They like to play, they like to play tennis. They like to play basketball. They play all of it. They're, I've got a 12, two 12 year olds and a 14 year old and they'll, they'll play anything, but to have it right there and not, and it's expensive, you know, the cost to, to join would be high. Yeah. I, I would love that, and I have to say big props to my dad, who was the uh, president of the of the club back in Baltimore where I grew up, and it was all dudes forever. Like, women were extended the rights and privileges of the club, but they were never allowed to join, and he changed that. And my dad is not a progressive thinker, but he was like, you you change or die with some things, and what's wrong? It's, it's not going to—it's no skin off anybody's teeth. You've got to change or die. Yeah, exactly. So, this pipeline problem is is a great way of putting it. I was a tennis kid. I grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which is which is home to the national USTA. Well, that's uh, not an elite sport. I understand. That's so <laughs> well, this, much different than golf. This was the problem. It is. It is. This is why I'm going to blame. I'm going to blame the privilege of tennis for why I'm not a great tennis player right now because. I would ball run for all of these folks at this tennis tournament who all went on. Pete Sambras, Agassi were before my time, but they all went through this tennis tournament in Kalamazoo. And there were rarely folks who could compete from Michigan on the national stage. And it's because, one, for tennis, you needed access to courts 365 days a year, which means warm climate or you can Mm -hmm. pay to play inside. And you need Mm -hmm. a coach to hit those balls with you. Mm -hmm. And frankly, every year, it was folks who came from very warm climates, but more so were, uh, were sent away to high-end camps to play tennis with a fancy coach to get to that next level. And yeah. I don't begrudge them for those uh, successes they had, but it's definitely a, uh, uh, an elitist sport that it's really hard to get a lot of folks who are just maybe growing up uh, middle-income families yeah, trying that's, to that's find why ways Venus, in. Yeah, I guess that's why Venus and Serena didn't make it. Exceptions uh, to the yeah. rule, oh, Governor okay. Case. Oh, is that? Okay. Oh, we had we had one black president, and now there's no more racism in America. <laughs> okay. Are we oh, going with that only. logic? <laughs> well, you know, have you guys interviewed Billie Jean King? I'm not sure if you had. She's got a t- terrific story in her um in her memoir that she just came out maybe six months ago about she was introduced to tennis through a friend took her to some club, and she loved it, and obviously was had a natural affinity for it. But they, her mom was like. We don't have money for that. That's nice that your friends fancy. She found out that they took they had classes, you know, lessons at the local public courts, and that was it. She she went, but you know that is again the exception. It's it's not everybody that's got. We've got a public uh couple, couple public courts down here. They're 
pitted and potholed. If it rains, you can't play. It's just chaos over there. And it's first come, first serve. People will play for three hours. It's not ideal for developing (laughs) young athletes, as it were. I like a sport that thrives on imperfect uh, conditions. Basketball, perfect example. If you practice basketball on a crappy court with a bad rim, with no net, you learn to play tough, you play in the rain. I think uh, there's stories in every little city and every little small town Indiana about folks just going out, playing uh, against all odds, and it only makes them better when they actually get to that better uh, that 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 higher level, unlike golf, which the governor is going to push, where you need to have a beautiful course and a a, a six course meal after the nine hole. But that's no, that's the beautiful thing about old wasps, and I'm I speak from the heart. They don't give a rat's ass about food. It's more like it's warm gin and 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 cashews, and that's good. <laughs> Maybe a shrimp cocktail if you're really feeling it. But it's it's basically they're still doing clams casino. They don't care about the food. I want you to open up a restaurant, warm gin and cashews. <laughs> warm and- gin and cashews. I'm telling you, I grew up, I, I came out to L.A. and I have uh, all these friends who from different backgrounds who aren't waspy. And they have dinners where everybody sits down and there's lots of food and then there's more food. And I'm like, dear God, has it always been this way? And they said, well, what was it? What Growing up for you, I was like, you never sat. You only stood at any social event. It was only cocktails. And it's, yeah, warm gin and some peanuts if you were lucky. Cashews was very high end. It's how the rich get richer, Klepper. That's, uh, how, they, that's how they do it. That's, that's what they do with their <laughs> cashews. And they save money on ice. It's a smart move. They don't, they don't have cold gin like those people throwing money away. They know right. to save it. That's how they it get says, richer. It says stay, but not too long. <laughs> we're, we're not a warm, fuzzy people. We'll be right back. Oh, my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. <laughs> Do not panic. We will be recording live chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes. In L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm and we will see you there. Come on out, waggers. Come out, waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding. (laughs) And now back to the show. What do you think is going on then now with this reflexive need to surround your oneself, not you, and I'm not speaking to you, yeah. but this reflexive need, this this kind of terrified um, hugging together of like-minded in- individuals in the in their own um uh, thought silo, bubbles. In their yeah, silo. and so yeah. I mean, that's very I, bad. Very it's very bad. bad. Right and or left. Right or left. A, when all you think. hundred percent. Yes. And whenever you whenever you think you know everything and you can't open your mind to somebody else, then you know the, the, it's the hard right and the hard left in this country who are pulling us apart and looking for wedge issues to separate us. But most people in this country live in the middle. I they agree. want to see things get better. You know, they're not. It's these extremists on both sides. What I tend to find is everybody points to the extremists on the right. There's extremists on the left. Go to Seattle and find out how many of these businesses are leaving there because Mm. people are being arrested. Look at Beverly Hills. In Beverly Hills, there were so many cameras up on the poles. I said, what's this all about? And my friends that live there said, John, people steal stuff. They They go into court and they get released. Catch and release is what they call it. That's not acceptable in our country. Well, that's, you know, I'm doing this podcast with Chad Sanders and Chad is black. And one of the things 
I, I got to know him because I read his book called Black Magic, which is about if you can survive the the trauma and trials of being black in America, you can use that to just overcome anything, that there's something good that comes out of any struggle. And True. that idea really appealed to me. But he constantly challenges. I mean, we're both liberals, but we're in very different sort of informational bubbles. Um, and I don't want to speak for him at, at all, but we were discussing uh, Ukraine just the other day. And, and I know you guys were talking about that at the top of the show. And it's absolutely heartbreaking and devastating on every level. And Chad said, absolutely. But why is this new? If you Google, uh, uh, if you Google conflict and war all over the earth, yeah. it's predominantly brown on brown, uh, or it's, you know somewhere where there aren't cameras, as Clepper said. You know it is different. The cameras are right on this war. What? Why can't we open our ourselves to understand that this this it, this is a Humanity does horrible things to humanity when it loses its humanity. And that is universal and it's awful. Yeah. But it, this is particularly salient right now for Ukraine because why? Because it's more European or because the cameras are there or is it a combination? What do you think? Well, I think it's because the camera. Uh, let me. I'm sorry, Jordan. I, I'll just say this, but it's because the cameras are there. It, it's like, why is it that senators are mostly thought about for being presidents rather than governors? Because the people who are in the press fall out of bed and they just get a, an Uber to go cover these people. Mm -hmm. When you got to go out to, you know, Wyoming or mm -hmm. they, they don't want to go there. They don't want to come to Ohio. They don't want to go anywhere. They're just that's D.C., D.C., D.C. But I think it has been easier for the cameras to show what's happening there. You know, it's, it was harder and harder to get to Syria. Mm -hmm. It was harder and harder. But this you see every day, and it's just breathtaking, just like it was, by the way, in Syria when they destroyed Aleppo. Why don't we know about uh, Chechnya? Because no cameras got there. But this, is, but this should be a good thing to show the world that civilized people led by the United States and the coalition of, of people who are in the West, we're here to protect the world. And mm -hmm. it's amazing to me how many how many of these countries have abstained in criticizing in criticizing Russia when they see the slaughter that's taken place. It's I, amazing. It's, I to agree. Me. And I, 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 I'm looking forward to hearing what Jordan has to say. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I don't disagree with any of this. I think there's there's nuance to it all. I think the governor is completely correct. Like every new conflict that's happening is happening within the context of our modern society and the technology that we have. And I think there isn't what we're starting to also see is the images that we see are are so quick and so immediate in a way that can move faster than the propaganda machine mm -hmm. that moves off and out of Russia. And so in some ways, you're seeing a victory of information because it can get to the West before the the media can spin it, the, specifically the, 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 the Russian propaganda machine. I think when looking at something like Syria, the governor is not wrong about that. Ac journalists access, like, do they access, access to images? Are they on the ground? Uh, this is ultimately, uh, not ultimately, but part of it is the storytelling element mm -hmm. of of these conflicts overseas. Mm -hmm. As Americans, we don't experience this in our backyard. When I'm in Hungary, when you're in Europe, you are experiencing it in your backyard. Mm -hmm. You are seeing these people. History seems like it's a lot closer in, in many ways than it is in America. And so, so yes, it's, it has to do with the images. It does have to do with race. Uh, and and I, I hate to be cynical about that, but I talked to Hungarians over there. And it's true. When a, a kid comes over and they're the same color as you, they look at that and they have perhaps uh, uh, more empathy towards seeing themselves in that person. And I think mm -hmm. uh, I think you also have countries that have codified that and succeed with that. Uh, Hungary is an example of a, uh, a totalitarian leading regime that benefits from putting up walls, running on the idea that others are coming in. That's also a very strong media narrative that there are others who are on the outside and they're going to take what you have. And I think in a place like Hungary, for example, they've been playing that song for uh, for years and it's been successful. Let's mm -hmm. build a border wall. <laughs> the yeah. other people are going to take what's yours. Mm -hmm. Vote for me. I can protect us. And that's also a narrative that is played in America very well. And so it's not always correct, but it's a narrative that the media takes, runs with, and people find success with. So again, I think, I think what we're seeing right now, we're seeing a, a, a human response to a human need. And I think that is, I, I, I'm, it feels like we're seeing it with clearer eyes than we did some of the, the past traumas uh, of the last few years. You, you know, Julie, there's a, just kind of 
when we talk about the power of a television show, you know, yeah. people across the political spectrum loved Modern Family. It's mm-hmm. really amazing. It it brought people together. How does this, how do these shows like Modern Family, and you introduce change in Modern Family over the yeah. course of it, what's the power of of what you have done, what you, how you participate to really kind of affect mores in, in, in our culture in this country. Well, where, where do you, th- how do you think you do it? What are the lines? That kind I, of thing. I do think that, um, but oh, I think a couple of things. One, one is, you know, Modern Family started, it, it's a network show. So we didn't, we were not taking a bat to the base of society. We were not smashing it in. We had advertisers. We can't use all kinds of language. We're working within certain constraints and constructs that are comfortable for, we're hoping, everybody. The whole, everybody has... TV and when they turn it on, they're expect you know you're not going to get nudity or swearing and and yeah on news programs you may get extreme right or extreme left but in your entertainment you're hoping to get uh, something in the middle and you're hoping to get entertained primarily so to introduce into there a gay couple this is the first gay couple uh, on a long term television show and definitely the first gay couple to get married and have a child um, that was really radical. And that was huge, but it was introduced in this nice sandwich of humor and uh, the writing was fantastic and it had a fun cast. And so it was much easier to take that spoonful of medicine of for some people of, oh, wow, gay people are just like us. Gay gay couples are just normal, loving people who want to have kids and want to get into school. And, you know, it becomes about the comedy of of being a couple, not about what's happening in the bedroom, because that should not be anybody's discussion. On the flip side, by the time we were done our 11 years, and it was the best job I've ever had, and I'd do it again tomorrow, we were getting criticized for being too white, too white bread, too boring. I mean, too, uh, not, not, in, not changing the culture. And I said, that's, that's great. I love hearing that. That means that the thing that was so radical in the beginning has now become, over the course of 11 years, it's become so normalized that we're now being accused of being too middle of the road and boring. I, wonderful. That, who could ask for more? Now let's get to the ne- I can't wait to, for the next show to do that for, you know, uh, interracial couples or whatever it is, because that is, you're at, you know, to serve it up in a way that people can eat it and eat it comfortably, um, I think it's really the only, it's not the only way. That's not true. There's people who would strongly disagree with me, and one of them is probably my co-host, Chad, That and he's got a much more, you've got to go right to the base of power. And he's not wrong. Um, and he, and I am speaking from a place of privilege where I'm like, well, let's just change from the inside. And he says, I'm not on the inside. I'll never be on the inside because I am black and we come from different places, but we all want the same thing, which is we all want love and understanding and nobody wants war. Mm-hmm. That was I mean, a long I think, answer. But I, but I think it's, it's, it's such a fascinating point because you look right now at culture, everything does feel so split. And we've been talking about this for mm-hmm. years, but there are very few cultural touchstones you can point to that it does feel like people on both sides of the spectrum can agree on. Mm-hmm. I think the, the stats with Modern Family, Barack Obama and Mitt Romney both said they were fans of Modern Family. I know. Uh, it's crazy. 2010, I have a survey from 2010 said it was the Republicans' third favorite show on television behind, I assume, Duck Dynasty and the, the Kavanaugh hearings. I, I'm only guessing. <laughs> uh, but but I but I think it, it was, it's such a fascinating show that offered a introduction for people. I want to read a quote, actually, because I thought this was really smart. It's a, a little bit of media analysis from Sherry Parks, she's an American studies professor at the University of Maryland, and she said about Modern Family, so there's the gay family with the child, the interracial family, and then there's the family that looks more like the prototypical nuclear family with the dad, the mom, and the kids. And you can enter the show wherever you want to. Rather than transcending politics, I think it's more a case of offering something for different political points of view. Yeah. Uh, I think it's really like a, a point of entry for a show that is welcoming and then allows you to allows you to discover and essentially fall in love with these other characters that you may not have come in relating to. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I do agree with that. And, and I also whenever I get, you know, pats on the back for 
helping, um, you know, gay kids come out in the Midwest because their parents saw a modern family or their um, homophobic cousin saw it and saw then felt differently about it. I would say, yeah, I did a, so much for white housewives. Like I really, yeah. the, I, I wasn't doing anything for a group that didn't need any more help. But at the same time, I was very proud to be part of the overall um, message and the overall show. And beginning, middle and end, we wanted to entertain people. And from day one, it was never I never had to deal with any of the controversy. And um, Jesse Tyler, uh, who is gay, dealt with more of it. And I think maybe Eric Stone Street had the had the most interesting sort of growth curve as a straight man from the Midwest who is a real like cowboy wearing God fearing. I don't know what his politics are, but I have a feeling we are different on them. Um, playing a gay character who loves a man and has a baby with him is really extraordinary. And I think that they they're really the ones to ask about that, that what it was like to be on the the front lines of changing people's hearts and minds. Um, But I'm certainly proud that I got to I got to stand up for the white ladies. If you go back to (laughs) what I was saying earlier about the, the right and the left extremes on both sides, most of us, I think, live in the middle. So mm-hmm. those on the left want to change everything immediately. Those on the hard right don't want any change at all. You know, they, they don't like immigration. I want it to be exactly what it was mm-hmm. back to, you know, all in the family kind of mm-hmm. stuff. But most of us live where we want evolution. We don't want revolution, but we want evolution. So what you were able to do in that show was to introduce a dramatic change in a, you know, in a way that was well thought out where mm-hmm. people could see it and not say, oh, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, they just came to, that's what change can be. I mean, people that fight for change, I mean, there's so many of them in the country that I admire and, you know, starting with Martin Luther King and everything, but he always understood that change was going to come over time. And I think what your show did was to point out how you can evolve people's attitudes. If put in the right construct, People will open their minds. But if you throw something at them on any side, they don't get it. And that's why I think your show was so successful and why people were, anyway, 11 years. Yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, I had my own show back in the old days on on uh, on Fox. It lasted four and a half years. I thought I was doing well. It was longer you than were. Star Trek. That's, was, a, that's an entire than Star administration. Trek. But, you, but listen, 11 years is pretty darn remarkable with people and I asked, I asked Levitan, I said, why did you have to quit? Maybe you could answer that. Why do you think you had to stop the show? I think there's two reasons. One, what, what I had said earlier is as far as telling stories that were really kind of helping to change the culture or that were entertaining and evolving instead of having revolution yeah. – We'd sort of reached the end. And the second thing is much more practical, uh, as with any show or any project, you're giving raises over time. And over 11 years, everybody from the actors who make big raises and the writers and producers, all the above the line people make big all the way down to the sound guys, anybody who's been there from the beginning, they're all getting bumps every year. Um even if it's just a cost of living adjustment, which, but I think we did better than that. I don't know what our budget was. Uh, at a certain point, you are so top heavy, it's not profitable. When, when you think of Modern Family as a show that invited people in to engage with mm-hmm. uh, challenging ideas and mm-hmm. then inviting this, this evolutionary change, as the governor w- w- would put it, do you see any other shows or, um, uh, or, or even whether it's film or television or series that is, is sort of taking that baton and, 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 and moving forward? Well, I'm always amazed by how things creep in, much like Modern Family was just fun. Like you watched it, and my, my parents just loved it off the bat. It was only after over time they're like, oh, they're kind of serving us some message in here and we're not, we're not being choked by it. Um, I know that right now... Um, uh, CBS has a huge hit with um, uh, what's it? Elementary. Oh, Abbott uh, Elementary. Abbott yeah. Elementary is a huge hit, and it's a primarily a cast of color, and it isn't. That, but that isn't the message. It's just we're going to tell the story. A lot of it, I think, is just seeing 
different faces, seeing it, quote unquote, normalized for uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll only speak for myself. For, I, I live in a household full of white people. And the more that we see and, and uh, interact with the stories of people who are not like us, the better off we are for it. And yet you need that point of entry. You need that. You need the funny in that case. Funny is it, funny is always a way in. And it doesn't matter whether what the subject matter is. If it's funny, you stop seeing the the colors or the differences. And I think that's that's a huge, but we talk about the cultural effect of Modern Family, and I think a lot of people do, but it needs to be pointed out how just freaking funny Modern Family was, <laughs> and the cast was undeniable. I was such a grump. My family were like, you have to watch Modern Family, and when God bless my parents, when they tell me I need to watch something, I'm like, I don't need to watch oh, This yeah, is the no. funniest show I'm ever going to see. Okay. Yeah. And begrudgingly, I'm like, all right, I'll watch Modern Family in the first season. And you fall in love with everybody. And there's chemistry. It's great writing, great performances. And it, it really, <laughs> as as we try to piece together, like, what was it about that that made it work? It was like, at, at the, the first invitation is you will fall in love with these people immediately because it is so, so well executed on all levels. Oh, well, th- that is very nice, but truly all, all. Props go to uh, Levitan and Lloyd, our co-creators and their writers. They came up with all of that, and and they did it again. Talking about evolution and revolution, Governor. There, I don't know if they would be able, if we would be able to cast Eric Stone Street, who won two Emmys for his performance, as a one half of a loving gay couple anymore because he is straight. And it's, I, I and I'm. I'm pretty damn liberal, but that feels like we would have missed something. We would have missed Eric Stone Street in that role because he wasn't playing uh, exactly who he is. And I don't know. I I, I loved um, our cast and I loved how it was cast and I wouldn't want to see it any other way. Um, and I want all actors, I want all people to have a shot at every job. But... It feels like who you sleep with shouldn't be a question when you're casting something, just like it shouldn't be a question when you're hiring something. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. Jolie, um, I have just to move to another area. You are involved in a lot of charity work involving children, Mm -hmm. okay? I'm involved uh, with an effort to try to help uh, on on health, mental health, uh, behavioral health on two fronts, adults, mm-hmm. but children. Mm-hmm. And somebody sent me something today that five-year-olds need to be screened, you know, for their level of stress, which I can relate to because I know if you can catch it early, you can most of the time, 80, 85% of the time, you can help young people solve their problems. When we talk about behavioral health, mental health now, the focus is always on adults and it's never on the kids. Why in our society, and we love children, why do kids get neglected? Why are they an afterthought? I think that the first and most sort of obvious is, well, it's the parents' fault. And uh, that it's up to the parents that we think that, I mean, if we look at Florida right now, the entire uh, uh, justification for the Don't Say Gay bill is we are giving the parents the power to discuss these things in the home. This idea that the parents should have the ultimate power over their children to shape them and form them leaves is great for some kids. And in other cases, it's not if the parents aren't attuned to stress or depression or anything else. There was an article in The New Yorker this week about a really interesting family um, where the son, uh, he's 12 and he commits suicide. And the whole, why don't, where is the intervention for younger kids who have depression and anxiety? I had a lot of depression and anxiety and God bless my parents. They intervened like hell. I talk about on the podcast, I ended up in a institution for a while. I needed that. I wish I didn't. It, But it was an intervention early on that was really helpful, um, and this was pre-SSRIs and some of the medications that are so easily available now, I don't know whether I would want, because I guess what I'm asking you, Governor, is, is are you talking about 
government intervention or yeah, are you I'm talking-, talking about even funding? You know, if you talk about funding, the kids, we all talk about the fact that mm-hmm. we care about our kids, but the kids seem to be left out. The priorities are always to the adults. So like I was saying, the adult hospitals, mm-hmm. they get this graduate medical education. The children's hospitals have to fight for it every year. It's BS. You know, when you, when you think about, uh, when, you, when you hear people now talking about mental health, which is coming at us like a freight train, which yeah. it should be, we hear people talking about adults. The people that I work with at children's hospitals, uh-huh. you know, they don't want to be left behind. There's a fear that, that they will be left behind. They'll be ignored. And because you're involved in a lot of charity work for kids, just, you know, and that's great. The question is, shouldn't government be more of a partner for you rather than you having to use, you know, do all this charity work? Where the where the hell are the dollars that should come from government to support these children? I'll go a step further, Food Governor, and tell you that, that some of these some of the charities I'm involved with, I won't name check them, but it's pretty obvious what they are, um, have actually been asked during COVID, the government actually came to us and asked us to get school supplies, to get basic necessities for children. Now, that's astounding because that is what a a freaking mess everything became when all of a sudden everybody's at home. There weren't enough resources. There wasn't enough child care. There weren't enough laptops, notebooks, internet, all of that stuff. And it falls. Now, I do... uh, I I am a diehard liberal. I come from a family of Republicans. They would say that's the role of the private sector. They should step in. That's what the gap that gap should be filled by the giving back and the generosity and well sense of obligation of the citizens. What do you think? I think government has a role, and I think that you know, like when they're going to write a bill having to do with uh, uh, with mental health parity. The kids ought to be kept in mind. If kids are are not being properly fed, just mm. everything can't go to charity. Charity has a role, but mm-hmm. there's also a role for government. I always say government is a last resort, not as a first resort, but we always seem to take care of adults. Mm-hmm. And I'd like some of the resources to be directed towards children, particularly in this area right now of mental health. And I've got to, I've got to say there are adults now waking up to this, and a lot of them haven't thought about it. But this pediatric mental health issue is a – well, you know. You, it's you huge. Look at what you got behind you. My three sons. Mm-hmm. That's a, you know, that's a, a definite double entendre, right? Mm-hmm. Your three kids. Look at them, 12 and 14, twins. I have twins, by the way, twin, mm-hmm. twin girls. But, you know, you know the struggles that they have, and there has to be a priority for them, not just for the adults. But don't you think that if it gets broken down, I, I think that the arguments that – when I have to approach an argument with some friends or family members who are on the other side of the 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 aisle from me, as we might say, if you could break it down to economics and say, listen, it costs us X to treat an adult and it costs us X to the 10th degree, 10th power to treat a school shooter or to imprison them, or the cost of the tri- trial. I mean, these kids that go into schools and kill other kids, they're basically children. And we're just getting, we're just getting the very you know, long tail of what has gone wrong with their lives and how there wasn't any early intervention. Um, and that's obviously a very extreme case. For the most part, I think most kids are dealing with really serious issues that don't end up in murder, but depression and anxiety are real and they take their toll on society as a whole as far as being productive. I I always try to break it down so that it's I'm not just speaking from my heart because uh, you can argue with somebody's emotions and say, oh, you're just a bleeding heart liberal. And if I can say, yeah, but don't you want to have don't you want the pipeline of workers to be healthy, mentally healthy, strong? This is the future. This is the future of our country. And it, they should be well-adjusted, mentally stable people. And Julie, I'm a I'm a bleeding heart conservative. I've balanced more budgets uh, than you than anybody you know. But you know what? You have to have priorities within a budget, mm-hmm. and you, and children should always be a priority. There is no reason for, for kids to be hungry in America today. It's it, it's just it's. It's. I've said enough. I'm sorry, I, Jordan. I, I will say one thing, and you know, I, I echo what you guys say here. It's something that broke my heart today. Um, I think it's so often this comes down to 
we get caught in too much of the politicking and not enough in the governing. Mm. Where are we governing to help? And it's it all becomes politics. I got my hair cut today, uh, which I do all the time because I have fantastic great. hair. Looks Thank fantastic. You. Thank you, Julie. Uh, you, Governor, you what do you think? pay for that. I hope I paid. I paid, again, $1,000, but it's worth every penny. Okay. Uh, That's good. It looks <laughs> I'm going to send you, you a Floby. Send me a Floby. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, but I went and got my hair cut today, and uh, my barber is a trans man, and we were talking about politics, talking about things, and we mentioned what's happening in Florida and the Don't Say Gay Bill. And I was picking his brain about what he thought and what it was like coming up, dealing with some of these issues. And he offhandedly said, uh, not flippantly, but just sadly, matter-of-factly, yeah, we're going to need to watch the suicide rates there. And it broke my fucking heart mm. because it's politics being played. And it's going to get some votes. It's going to rile some people up. But meanwhile, you're having people watching the suicide rates because it's affecting kids who need help. And instead of trying to have an earnest conversation about how we can help these kids, we're having a political conversation about how we can get some votes. And it it bums me out. But it seems to be some sort of backlash against um, this, what's perceived as, as the woke media and that things, it's gone too far. And look, I just said... Myself, I felt like I would I would have been sad to see Eric, someone other than Eric Stone Street play that role. And he is a straight man playing a gay role. So maybe I'm part of that problem, too, saying it's gone too far. But some of it is some of the don't say gay is directly a reaction to this feeling on the far right that they're being dictated to by the far left. And this is the only way they can hit back. So how do we get everybody to put down their arms? How do you get everybody to stop seeing it as an attack and instead just take a freaking breath? I, I don't have an answer, but it's it doesn't have to be a battle all the time. I mean, everybody wants everybody wants healthy kids. Everybody wants to be mentally healthy. Everybody wants prosperity. Nobody wants war. This idea that then we have to dictate every single thing to our teachers to families to make sure that we are keeping the, and I say in quotes, America we want or they want or whoever it is wants, it it saddens me because there is no way out of That spiral just gets tighter as it goes down. It never loosens up. There's never a moment where you go, okay, let's just take a breath here. And unfortunately, what does loosen it up to me is when I see, I, I turn on, uh, CNN or or Fox or whatever, because I watch all the news channels and see Lindsey Graham saying, you know, we've got to kill Putin. And you say, oh, there's a crisis that's so huge over there. I'm hoping that the the size of it, the 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 drama and the horror that we're seeing, will make us loosen our grip on this really petty <sighs> need to control every single thing that is said and done in our country. So you're saying you're rooting for calamity, global no, calamity. I'm not. I'm hoping, though, that like the governor said earlier, maybe it was you, Klepper. I don't know. Somebody said there is, I think it was you in Hungary, maybe, that mm-hmm. people, there. the bright spot is watching the people pull together. The bright spot in any of this is watching, oh, my God, the, the freaking strollers that the women are leaving at the border in Poland. Just leaving them there. Mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. as these women come over in the middle of the night or at whatever hour, they just have a place to put the baby down. And that that gives me faith in humanity and that that is where we connect and we will always connect there. It doesn't always have to be a struggle. You know, it sometimes we, we shouldn't take the bait. In other mm. words, we see a story here or a story there, and we blow it up into every—I just talking to a buddy about, about this. Just because somebody says something on the right or the left, who cares? Right. It's, it's you know, don't, don't take the bait and, and just respond to these examples that are out of the, out of the ordinary. That's kind of my sense of this. I but try But maybe not that to is why the, I, the, the idea of calamity—I mean, I know you were joking, Clepper. You better have been joking. But that—, that those bigger stories start to take up more inches, news column inches, and there's less yeah. room to take the bait. There's Someone's yeah. always going to be taking the bait. But when you've got something big and real, you don't have to manufacture as much news by going to a city council meeting and talking about some tiny thing that was said and making it massive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. It, that's why I say don't, don't take the bait. 
you know, we're going to lose you here soon. I wanted to find out, and I know mm. Jordan, I have not had the chance, but I will, to listen to your podcast. Why are you doing it? And it's about quitting. I kind of like that because, you know, I quit when I left Congress, you know, and I was telling somebody the other day, I think the success in anything is to not have your identity tied to your work. So mm. the ability to quit, boy, there's power in that. I mean, there how did really this come is. about? It's well, a theme. It's a theme of our podcast too, because I, yeah, I after we think every we're podcast, quit. exactly. I, I tell the governor he should quit almost every time we do an interview. <laughs> why podcast. are you quitting? Why? Why? Why was that so fascinating to you? And honestly, what? I know. It's, I feel like you're both dealing with quitting and the idea of privilege in a very compelling way. Yeah. Well, that it came about because of Chad. I'd read his book. I'd read Black Magic. I'd heard him on a podcast. Um, I'd heard him on Armchair Expert. And friend, mutual friends got us in Zoom touch with each other. And I, he, is, he is smart and charming and all the things that make you want to come back for more conversations. But he also just didn't shy away from some of the stuff that is uh, uncomfortable. And meanwhile, you know, I'm on the board at my kid's school. We do a lot of the, you know, I've read the books. I'm the white lady that read the books and wants to get an A. I want to do it right and um, and be the anti-racist in the perfect way and check all the boxes. And I've learned there that's impossible. And that you sometimes just listening and having that interchange of ideas like you guys do. And sometimes it gets a little spiky. It gets a little uh, hot um, was really interesting. And one of the things that he talks about quitting in Black Magic was basically – white corporate world. He was, he worked at Google and was like, felt like wearing, he felt that, and I can't speak to his experience, but I can tell you what he said, which is that wearing chinos and dockers every day and feeling this need to fit in in order to succeed was not working for him anymore. And he quit and he was freed in doing that. He was freed up to do what was next. And he's a writer and he is a, a, a lecturer and he's a podcaster and he writes for television and movies. He now is living the life he always wanted. And so that there is that freedom in taking a step out of, you know, leap in the net will, will appear really. He leapt and uh, his friend's couch appeared for a long time and that was about it. And, but he's freer and happier. Um, and we're, we're living in a society where last year, 40 million people quit their jobs. Now, a lot of them probably shouldn't have. And those aren't necessarily the people we're talking to. Um, we're talking to the people who are making life changes and are surprising themselves with, their, with the, what they are able to do when they quit. And when you leave behind this idea of who you thought you were, uh, who do you become? Um, you know, when you're you, Governor, you you quit a, a, a presidential race. That had to have been huge, or was that always baked into it? Well, you know, I was there till the bitter end, and when it was over, I, I haven't ever told anybody this. I was on a plane, and we were going to do a fundraiser, and I could have done it, and I thought, you know, that's not right. I, I know this isn't going to go on because Trump's going to have enough votes in the convention. I was really hoping that we would block him and then people would come to their senses. Mm. But when it was over, um, I left, we got off the plane, I went inside the, the uh, FBO and I went behind this building and I cried. I had one cry and then I went, then I went to my daughter's school and that was really hard and they had gotten wind of it and then they came out and gave me a big hug, but then it was over and I, it was a wonderful experience. I quit Congress. I just walked away and I thought, okay, time to do something else. I left the governor's job. People say, you know, do you miss being governor? It is a powerful position mm. in the seventh largest state. Mm -hmm. You know, I said no because I knew what was going to come and the, the, the job doesn't define me. And I'm just delighted now to be doing this stuff with Jordan. I mean, this, this podcast has really, really become a lot of fun for me because you expand your mind, you meet people you didn't even know before. And I, I think it's really cool, but I got a lot of things going on. So I think it's always to keep moving forward and do things that you are excited about. What about you, Clipper? Have you ever quit anything significant? No, I, I, I've just been a success at almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is it's not in my character. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. And he's so rich he too, quit. right, Jordan? You know, you're rich. You know, what, I, one thing that you know that I I thought was interesting about it, and sort of the the thesis behind it as well. Like, I've been into stoicism a lot recently. And you and my sister. Really, I, I I I I can't get into it because the 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 bar to entry is the word. So sell me because I'm like really stoicism. Like we stoicism. sleep on a, on the ground. Stoicism and the, the way it's colloquially been uh, known are are slightly different. I would say stoicism baseline is a philosophy that's very actionable, and it's mostly get used to knowing the things you can control, the things you can't control. And focus on just the things you can control, and then it has to do with temperance. It really, it really is Romans and Greeks, and focuses on some pretty basic axioms. Uh, but it really is like uh, wrap your mind around the things you can control, and then act accordingly. And one of the big tenets within that too is get used to saying no and shutting things down. I think I come from an improv community that uh, lionizes yes, the and. idea of saying yes. Yes and. And I love that. And honestly, it's it's been great for me in a creative setting. But I think as a lifestyle, you have to get good at enjoying shutting down options that take away time. And Stoicism has Seneca talk about uh, uh, lost time and expectancy about things that will come. And I think the embrace of saying no and stopping something that is not good for you and giving you more space to go in another direction is something I've had to learn because I kind of came from a mindset that was grab and say yes to whatever is there. But then you're saying yes to somebody else's whims and ideas as opposed Mm -hmm. to kind of these things that you get to define. So you've taken a more philosophical approach to saying no. You 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 still can't get your brain around a quit. You're, it yeah, still I mean, is I, a quitting. I, well, I, I, as far as like a hard quit, I've had relationships that have mm. ended, and that's I think from a relationship standpoint, that has been really hard. And and I think as as I quit one of my early relationships, I realized I was saying no to that whole person that I was and that was maybe the scariest thing I ever did Is where it, you're like, wh- who were you who were you I was a 27 year old who uh I was going through kind of my quarter life crisis um I had been with that person for uh almost a decade Ooh. and and I had lived my life as this person and I think that person was I don't want to be unfair to her but she sort of was like the she was the avatar of the person I had become at that point in my life. And mm-hmm. I reached the, my quarter life. It was like, but there's other people I want to become. <laughs> and, and so I think in ending that relationship was also part of me saying yes to the scariness of what is this other thing I want to become? Who are these other people I want to get to know? And and I think that was a very scary thing because, I don't know, as a, as a Midwesterner who is told you go to school to uh, go to your next school so you can get a job and what have you, the idea of getting off the path is a very scary one. Uh, but Yeah, but, but that's, where you, that's where we grow. Yes. Th- so that is where told. we grow. Well, I, it's you don't want to grow. Not too much growing. And actually, that is an axiom in comedy. There's not too much growing. Not then it much. becomes drama. You don't want too much. <laughs> you don't want drama. But the idea of quitting, and I don't mean as, again, raising three sons, stick-to-itiveness, grit. We talk about it all the time. Finishing what you said you would do. You know, don't, don't, it's better to under-promise and over-deliver. I, we nail these things all the time. And that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about quitting. We're talking about exactly what you just said, Klepper, walking away from something that is makes you feel less than you could be, whether it's a, a relationship, cigarettes, uh, drinking, uh, the governorship, um, whole states. I, I, I talked to Jay Leno and he had to leave an entire he had to leave New York because his friends were all becoming waiters and they were self-supporting and he could not make a dime doing stand-up. But he knew those tables were calling him and he had to quit the entire state and walk away until he could get his feet under him as a comedian. Sometimes we have to force ourselves to be uncomfortable before we can be successful. Now, you've also interviewed on your podcast a bunch of your colleagues from Modern mm-hmm. Family. Is there mm-hmm. anything you discovered uh, that you didn't know about them in interviewing them about their experiences? Oh, I, the only thing I discovered is that I miss them so much. They, they, all of those episodes have me crying in them. I'm like, ah, I cannot <laughs> stop because they really were, we thought we would all just see each other the next week. 
We finished Feb- end of February 2020. Oh, uh, really? Yes. Oh, man. Two weeks later, there was no no new, more normal. Everybody sort of scattered. We've seen each other and texted each other and Zoomed and everything. But it's just, it, it does feel like having a limb severed off. It's like we went to college and grad school, you know, went to college twice and then grad school, 11 years with the same people. And so that was very, very painful. Um, but worth it to talk to them. Worth it to hear about their lives and what they've, I think Sarah Hyland comes to mind. You know, I've spent 11 years with her. I thought there were no stories about her. I didn't know. And, but when she talks really openly and personally about, uh, how she feels about her body and being sexualized and being a young woman in Hollywood who has this, and I've seen it. I was there for all the operations, these kidney procedures. She had kidney replacements, two of them. And it was, she looked, she'd been in a knife fight. She's not, you know, a cross section of just her midsection is not sexy. It's not, it isn't a hot girl in Hollywood. And how, how do you deal with how the millions of people see you versus how you see yourself every day in the mirror? And how do you let go of that? And it sounds so superficial, but really it is a profoundly challenging mental issue. Uh, how, how you see yourself. You know, there's uh, two things that I would say, you know, for me, um, I think it's two, two, two things. One is if you're having trouble being able to navigate things that are happening in your head, then you've got to get, you got to get some help. Mm-hmm. But there's a second part for me. And he's, uh, Jordan, since we've started this, has become stoic. Uh, I've, I'm just a believer in the, in the Lord, and I find great solace in knowing what I can control, which is virtually nothing, and what he controls, which is virtually everything. But I've got one last question for you, because talking about quitting, because I read mm-hmm. this, and I think people will zoom to the back of this podcast to get your answer. You said <laughs> you were quitting dating. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I was married for 13 years. I was uh, I was a serial relationshipist before that, and I think quitting being part of a couple um is a big deal uh when you've been part of a couple forever even if it was different couples um and then when i i got divorced people gave me a little time off but then they were like oh i gotta set you up with i gotta set you up but i did a little of that and i said you know what uh-uh. i have a dog and i, I have <laughs> and a good three book. boys i have a dog a, bo- a good book and three boys i yeah. i'm okay everybody likes to put in there plug, plug your ears governor that i must have sex toys and i do not i just have my three boys a dog and a good book i have my imagination but i don't need i'm i'm done dating for now for now oh for now okay i thought you quit forever <laughs> well, that's what i i would qu- i, I see. you're I already keep changing saying, this no okay. i said forever but everybody said there's nothing Saying anything is forever is is foolish. You know, it's yep. that's that's just crazy. Modern um, Family fans, you heard it here first. Basic <laughs> Klepper, there's Julie. She's coming back on scene. I don't know. I don't know about that. I do want to say one <laughs> one last thing to you, Governor. You just said if you can't navigate this space in your head, um, get some help. I have lots of friends in the. Uh, uh, a recovery community, and they have an AA great saying, which is, "Your head is a dangerous neighborhood. Don't walk in there alone." No. Well That's said. a yeah. Thank you. You're, you're well. You're welcome. I made it up. No, I just brought thank it you. to you. But That's but good. thank you, and thank you for having me. This was really really scary and fun. <laughs> See, he's not very scary, right? In the end, he's just he's just a, a big cuddly uh golden retriever. I I, I mean I, I love the both of you. I think you're fantastic. I like the balance. I like how different you are. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. Honestly, and I and I loved it. I listened to a couple episodes of of Quitters. And I really think it's it's great. You guys are wonderful. I like it's I, I think we're both sort of experimenting in that world of like, oh, let's pick a person that we respect and don't know a mm-hmm. ton about and let's co-host with other people, which is such a really fun space to kind of to literally get to know your co-host as you're moving through it, which is Yeah, I know. We're getting to know each other, that relationship and I bet yours, I bet there's a lot to be said about about these two. I mean, Kasich and Klepper, that's a we I was like, wait, 
Is that the is it the same two people? I'm thinking, I had to look it up and listen to it before I was like, oh, yeah, for real? Hey, everybody. Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producers, Oscar Guido. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by Acast.